0: If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation. Lord willing, we will finish this chapter today, and when we do so, we will be at the exact halfway point of our study through this book. There are 22 chapters, we'll be finishing chapter 11 today. We started this Sunday after Easter, Lord willing, we'll finish it the Sunday before Easter, but we've been in some challenging passages, right? Some hard passages, hard passages because they're hard to understand, because we have different interpretations of what they mean, but also hard passages because of the content dealing with suffering and tribulation, martyrdom, persecution of the church. And what a kindness from God that at the halfway point, we're given such a message of encouragement in our passage this morning. Here at the midway point, we get a different kind of message from this book as we get a window to the very end reminding us that all that has been happening and all that is happening and all that will happen and all that the church will endure is all a part of God's plan and he's already determined what that will look like and we get a picture of that today and it's good news so let's read beginning in verse 14 of chapter 11 we'll read through the end of the chapter church this is God's word the second woe has passed behold the third woe soon to come then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Would you pray with me? Our God and King, what a privilege it's been to sing these stories extolling you for your glory and thanking you for your grace. We thank you for the incredibly amazing and awesome picture of the hope that we have in Christ through the Lord's Supper. And we pray now, Father, that our spirit of worship would continue as we yield to the Holy Spirit as he speaks to our heart through your word, for that your word would come alive to us and you would Encourage and edify your church and convict sinners of their hopeless condition and show to them the hope that is found in Christ alone. We ask this in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. So these closing verses of chapter 11, if you're taking notes, can be organized into four parts. First of all, in verse 14, we see That the third woe is announced. And we'll talk about what that is. In verse verse 15, the seventh trumpet is blown, and John hears loud voices in heaven. In verses 16 through 18, the 24 elders fall down on their faces and worship God. And then in the final verse, we see a picture of the end as heaven is opened, the Ark of the Covenant is, is seen, and there's a great storm, massive storm signaling the final judgment. So let's look at each of these parts one at a time as we make our way through this text. First of all, verse 14 says, The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So if you recall at the end of chapter 8, after the first four trumpets, John sees an eagle in heaven. And the eagle cries out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. He announces three woes are coming. He says, woe, woe, woe. At the blowing of the last three trumpets that the last three angels will blow. And so that was announcing that there are three woes. The first woe followed immediately after that in the first half of chapter 9. That was the fifth trumpet, which we noted was a, a swarm of locusts that symbolized a, a, somehow a, a swarm of de- demons that would terrorize and torture those who did, not, who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. Right after that, in the midway point of, of chapter 9, we're told that the first woe has passed and there are still two more woes to come. And so the second woe was immediately followed after that in the second half of chapter 9. That was the sixth Trumpet. And in the sixth trumpet, we saw 200 million mounted troops. Again, representing somehow a, a, a swarm, a, a huge, massive army of demons that will be unleashed on earth dwellers. And we're told that, that fire and smoke and sulfur come th- from their mouths, and, and somehow they kill a third of mankind. But the third woe, doesn't get announced until this morning. Chapter 11, verse 14. At the interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And so this interlude that we've been in, that, that covered all of chapter 10 and up to this point in chapter 11, all of that is also part of that second woe. And so to help us understand what, what's happening here, I want us to consider how the structure of the, the seven seals compares in contrast to the structure of the seven judgments. The first six seals that we saw in chapter 6, they, they had a very specific content. Tribulation and suffering to those on the earth. And after the sixth seal, there was an interlude. And the interlude, the purpose of that was to show us how the church was faring during those six seals. That interlude consisted of chapter 7 where we saw two pictures of the church. In one hand, the 144,000 arrayed as if an army, as if they were an army ready to enter into the tribulation. And the second picture of the church in chapter 7 was that of the uncountable multitude before the throne coming out of the tribulation worshiping God. Symbolizing that God would protect them spiritually through that tribulation. And then There was the seventh seal. The seventh seal was opened, and and there was no specific content in the seventh seal. But instead, the seventh seal was a prelude to the trumpet judgments that came next. And so we could say that the content of the seventh seal was, in fact, the seven trumpets. And we see a very similar structure with the seven trumpet judgments themselves. The first six had a very specific content. Judgment and wrath... On earth dwellers, After the first six trumpets, there was an interlude. We're, we're just coming out of that interlude. And that interlude, like the interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal, tells us how the church fared. And so we saw these pictures of the church in chapter 10 and chapter 11. In chapter 10, it was the little scroll. And the, and the little scroll contained a prophecy that for the church was both bitter and sweet. Remember that? He had to eat the little scroll. It was bitter in that the church would have to endure hardship and persecution and martyrdom. But it was sweet in that on the other end of that, there was Christ coming back and the establishment of his internal kingdom. In chapter 11, as uh, as we're just finishing today, also had two pictures of the church as well. First of all, the temple being measured, showing that, that we are owned by God and we are protected spiritually by God through the tribulation. And then secondly, that picture of the two witnesses that we saw representing the church in the midst of the tribulation and what she will endure and what her, her responsibility will be. And so then there that, at the end of that, that, uh, that interlude, chapters 10 and 11, now we're seeing this morning the seventh trumpet, the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Which also is a prelude to what comes after it. It's a prelude to the bold judgments, and we won't get to the bold judgments until chapter sixteen. But the seventh trumpet is a is a prelude to that, and so we could say that the content of the seventh trumpet is the bold judgments, and the bold judgments themselves, in my estimation, are the third woe. They they are the contents of that third woe that is announced. By the blowing of the trumpet. And that's what we get to next in verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven. Now, let's contrast that with the opening of the seventh seal. If you recall, at the beginning of chapter 8, when the seventh seal was opened, what happened? There was nothing, right? There was silence. There was silence in heaven for half an hour. Prior to that, there had been all kinds of worship, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, all the hosts of heaven shouting, holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty. And now there's silence for half an hour. And now the atmosphere with the blowing of the seventh trumpet is completely different. With the opening of the seventh seal in chapter 8, it was, it was somber That silence was a a foreboding prelude of the trumpet judgments that are to follow. But now, with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, this is not a somber atmosphere. This is not a foreboding prelude. It is a prelude. It's, It's a prelude announcing that the bold judgments are to come, but this is a different kind of prelude. This is a prelude that is replete with worship. It is an atmosphere of celebratory worship. And that worship begins with these loud voices that John hears in verse 15. And what were they saying? They were saying, as verse 15 says, the kingdom of the world, that word world is the Greek word cosmos, it means, well it means the world, it means everything, it means the universe, all of the earth, the kingdom of this world has become, note the past tense there, the kingdom of this world has become what? The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is what the voices were saying. That that word saying is in the imperfect present tense. And so it's not that this was said once time to to so that they would understand what was happening. It was said over and over and over again. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of his Lord and of his Christ. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, what does that mean? Well, back in chapter 5, back in that throne room scene that we saw in chapter 5, where the lamb took the scroll from the hand of the one who was sitting on his throne, who was God, the 24 elders sang about Jesus, and listen to what they sang. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, they sang about what Jesus did. Saying about what Jesus accomplished in coming to earth. That he died on a cross to ransom the church. To ransom people from God. From every tribe, language, tongue, and nation. And then what does he say about us? And you have made them, those whom you have ransomed, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And, and, and if you recall, we said at that time that this was pointing forward to a time when we, as the people of God, the church, those who have been redeemed by grace through faith in Christ alone, would reign with Christ on earth, which points forward to either a millennial kingdom or the final state or both, depending on your eschatological flavor of the month. But the point is it was pointing to the end. It was pointing to what was going to happen at the very end. And what we see here in chapter 11 is we're there. We're there now at this point in this vision. Because what are we told? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. That to which the throne room scene of chapter 5 pointed has now been fulfilled. It has now been accomplished. Now, what does it mean that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ? Well, what's the kingdom of this world? It's just what it sounds like. It's the kingdom of this world. The kings of the earth. The political establishment. The world powers. The authority that is in place. The rule of man. The rule of man's law. The world system. The kingdom of this world. We, we know what the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ is. It's referring to the eternal kingdom of God. The kingdom promised to Israel that there would be one who comes from King David who would rule forever. It would always sit on that throne. That's God's eternal kingdom. That kingdom was inaugurated when Jesus came to earth and he lived among us and he died in our place on the cross and rose three days later, Jesus would often preach during his earthly ministry and he would say over and over again, we see this in the gospels, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the kingdom of heaven has begun. It's been ushered in, it's broken into the world, it's been inaugurated, the kingdom of heaven Is among us, is what Jesus was saying. But Jesus also said, My kingdom is not of this world. Because His is a spiritual kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. And church, Jesus has been reigning in this spiritual heavenly kingdom from heaven after He ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. He's been reigning in this spiritual kingdom for over 2,000 years. But the plan all along, as we know, was for Jesus Christ to return and to establish his kingdom on earth. This was part of the original promise from the angel Gabriel when that angel announced to Mary, the mother of Jesus, that she was pregnant with the Christ. Listen to Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him, listen to this, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And when Jesus taught about his his return, When Jesus taught in the gospel, specifically in Luke 17 and Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, when Jesus taught about his second coming, he likened his return with the coming of the kingdom of God or the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And now we're told in this setting of the vision and revelation that the kingdom of the world has become, in other words, it's been replaced with, it's been been overpowered by, it's been overcome by the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. We know that one of the themes of the book of Revelation is the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. And this coming of the kingdom of God, this establishing of that kingdom on earth, is inaugurated by the return of Christ. He he inaugurated the kingdom of God, his kingdom, when he came to earth the first time. And he will inaugurate the establishment of that kingdom on earth when he comes back a second time. And so this passage here in chapter 11 is a window into that which will be described in much greater detail when we get there in chapter 19. The kingdom of this world is given way to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And it happens with the return of Christ. And so what we have in these closing verses of chapter 11 is a a window into the future. Beyond the third woe, beyond the, the bold judgments, beyond Armageddon to a time when Christ will return and his eternal kingdom is established on earth. So we've just fast-forwarded basically through seven chapters of the book and come to the events that are laid out for us in chapters 19 and 20. We should recall that this fast-forwarding effect is also something that we saw at the end of the seal judgments. Not at the end of the seventh because the seventh it was just silence, but you remember at, the, at with the blowing of or excuse me the opening of the sixth seal Uh, There was at that time a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood. The stars fell to earth. We talked about what that meant. But we're also told that the kings of the earth and all of the earth dwellers hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains. And they cried out to the rocks and they cried out to the mountains to fall on them so that they might escape the coming wrath of God. And we talked about how that time, that that was symbolic of the very end, the final judgment. And now, at the end of the trumpet judgments, now we're there again. With the blowing of the seventh trumpet, now we're at the very end again. Which reminds us that these judgments, in many ways, are, have kind of a, a telescoping effect from the seal judgments to the trumpet judgments to the bowl judgments. In fact, I wanted to use like a real telescope to help illustrate this, and so I am very grateful to Mr. Clay Gilio, who has very graciously and kindly um, offered for me to use this this morning as an illustration. So there, there's a sense in which there is an escalation, uh, 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 an intensification of from one judgment to the other, from the, from the seal judgments to the trumpet judgments to the bowl judgments. We see an intensification in those judgments and in, the, in that suffering. But in another sense, we also see that there's a, there's a retelling of that story over and over again. And I think, I think both are happening in Revelation, kind of like a telescope. You can extend it, and you can collapse it. You can compress it. In one sense, we see a linear progression from the seal judgments to the trumpet judgments to the bowl judgments, like a telescope that is, that is fully extended. And, and the degree to which we see that linear progression in the judgments is the degree to which we will probably interpret the judgments chronologically. Right? There's a linear progression from one to the other. But in another sense, it seems as though the end of the seal judgments corresponds with the end of the trumpet judgments and so on. Because the end of both the seal and the end of the trumpets is what? The very end, the return of Christ and the final judgment. And so to the degree to which we see a compression of those judgments is the degree to which we will interpret these judgments as... Uh, recapitulating or retelling the story over and over again that the that the trumpets are really recapitulating or retelling the story of the seal judgments and subsequently the bowls are retelling what happens during the trumpet judgments personally I think that both are happening here I think both of these things are happening uh, to, to one degree or another I, I see a progression I see an intensification. In them, so to, to a certain degree, there's a linear progression, but I also see a re- recapitulation. Obviously, there is some degree of retelling of the story as well. So both are at play. And where the where the linear progression stops and the recapitulation starts, we can argue for another thousand years about what is happening there. But the point here is that the blowing of the seventh trumpet is uh, uh, symbolizing that the kingdom has come. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. At this point in the the vision, as as John is given this window into the end, Christ has returned, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the kingdom is established here on earth. So John's in the middle of this, this vision, Right in the middle of Revelation, as we said. Halfway point. And it's going to get worse. And at this point, he is reminded that God's in control. God's got it all in hand. And everything that has happened and everything that is going to happen is happening according to his sovereign plan. We should be reminded that this was promised to us by that angel who who had the little scroll in chapter 10. He promised that this would happen. In chapter 10, verse 7, the angel said, In the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And so now, with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God and how he will consummate his kingdom is fulfilled. It is accomplished. Now, because these closing verses of chapter 11 just give us a window into the future, we should be reminded that it's just a window, right? It's not a perfect, it's not a whole scene of of what's going to happen in the end. It's just a blurry glimpse of the end. But we see hints of it all throughout the remainder of this passage. So what else happens after these loud voices uh, announce the kingdom of God has come? Well, now we see the 24 elders. We haven't seen the elders since chapter 7. But now we see all of them, and what are they doing? They're bowing and they're falling on their faces. Verse 16 the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worship God. Now, again, these are angelic beings that in some way represent the church before God in, in heaven. That's why they're called the elders, not because they are actual elders of the churches, but that they somehow represent the church before the throne, not in a mediatorial way. We have one mediator, the Lord Christ, but in a representative way, they represent the church. They stand in the place of the church in the throne room before God. And as our representative, they worship God. And so their worship, in many ways, can be exemplary for how we are to worship. And so what are some characteristics that we see in their worship? First of all, they're humble. They fall on their faces. They literally fall prostrate before the Lord and worship Him. And our worship, too, should look the same. Not that we should all fall prostrate. We can. But it's not talking about us falling prostrate, but us having that attitude in our heart. An attitude of humility that we humble ourselves before our God. Church, if we do not approach God in humility, we do not approach God in genuine worship. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as we approach God in worship, our our heart attitude should be the same. This poverty of spirit, that he is God and we are not. So we see humility in their approach. Secondly, we see thankfulness. Look at verse 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. We give thanks to you. There's a lot there in verse 17, but for starters, we should see that one of the key elements of their worship is thankfulness, a heart of gratitude. They say, We thank you for you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. We'll talk a moment about what that means. But for now, we ought to just notice their their gratefulness to God, their heart of gratitude. A genuine heart of worship will be a heart that is filled with thankfulness for both who God is and what God has done. And by the way, humility and thankfulness go hand in hand. Because without humility, we will not see that which we ought to be thankful for. Instead, a prideful heart is blind to the blessings of God. And when a prideful heart does see God's blessings in their life, it's not content with them because it feels as if it deserves more. So humility and thankfulness go hand in hand. Humility is the key that unlocks the doorway to a heart of thankfulness. And then thirdly, just as we mentioned with their thankfulness, the focus of their thankfulness was two things, who God is and what God has done. And so their worship included a recognition of who God is and what God has done. They say, we give thanks to you. Who? Who is he? Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. And what has he done? For you have taken your great power and you've begun to reign. When we when we come to God in worship, our adoration and our thanks ought to likewise be in recognition of who He is, His divine attributes, His character, His nature, as well as what He's done, the, 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 the blessings in our life, the evidences of grace in our life, and most importantly, the grace that He has shown to us in Christ because of the gospel. So that's not a bad recipe for genuine worship, whether it's worship with our lips or worship with our lives, that our worship should be marked by humility and thankfulness and a recognition of who God is and what He has done. But as we continue looking at this song of the 24 elders in verse 17, do you notice anything missing from that description of God's identity and nature? They say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, who is to come. It's not there, is it? It was there in chapter 1. In chapter 1, when we were first introduced to Jesus, Jesus says of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. It was also there in the Song of the Four Living Creatures Chapter four, who's saying, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Why is that phrase missing now in verse 17 of chapter 11? Because he's already come. He's already come. This is explicitly stated to us in the second half of verse 17. The elders continue, for you have taken, past tense, For you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. So Jesus has returned in this vision. He's returned with great power and he's begun to reign on earth. The reference to the Lord taking his great power is is symbolic of him displaying his great power. And he did or he will. Remember Revelation, is we've now fast forwarded the story. We've now jumped in a timetable and we skipped ahead from the trumpets to the return of Christ in chapter 19. And there's an awful lot that's happened in between. And we'll read about it in the coming chapters. But suffice it to say that there, there has been a magnificent display of God's power and God's wrath. And this is hinted at in the next verse, in verse 18, as they, the 24 elders continue their worship. The nations raged, but your wrath came. That's again, past tense. Your wrath came. And now, the time for three events. The time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So the elders are still worshiping here. They're still thanking God for what he has done and what he's going to do. And they're speaking about it as if it's already happened because we're on the other side of the vision. And as they're worshiping, there are several events here in verse 18 that are alluded to that will happen at the very end. And these are all things that will be covered in the subsequent chapters as we, as we get into them. But they're alluded to here in the closing verses of chapter 11, which the end of chapter 11 really is the end of a major portion of the vision. And as we start into chapter 12 next week, it's going to be the start of another part of the vision. There's a huge delineation right between chapters 11 and 12. And so with these closing verses, there's this summation of what's going to happen at the end. So what, what are the events that we see alluded to here? There's five of them. First of all, the nation's raging. This is a picture of an unbelieving world shaking their fist at God, denying God, rejecting God, rejecting the gospel, defying Him. And it's a reminder to us that the lost world will remain in rebellion to the very, very end, right up to the end. The nations are raging today. and We can look around us today and we can see examples of how the nations are raging and defying God and rejecting the gospel but it's only going to get worse, much, much worse. And perhaps, parenthetically, that, that ought to inform how we, uh, for example, fight for justice in the world today. Certainly, we ought to seek to right wrongs in the world today, but that's not our ultimate mission. That, that's not why God has us here. And we're reminded of that here because... Though we can fight for temporary gains, the reality is the word tells us that it's going to get worse. It's going to get much, much worse. And so our focus, while we can fight for justice, our focus needs to be bringing a gospel, which is the only hope for a, a world that is raging against God. For them to hear that there is hope only found in Christ alone and in the gospel. So the nations are raging, but there will be an end to that. Because secondly, it says that God's wrath came. Your wrath came. And the the wrath of God will be on display in the bowl judgments of chapter 16. In fact, they are explicitly described there as the, the, the seven bowls of the wrath of God. That's what they're called. The word wrath means vengeful anger, retribution, punishment for a crime committed, and church, God is angry with man because of our sin, because of our disobedience, because of our rebellion against him. And because of our sin, God is filled with His vengeful anger and this righteous anger can only be satisfied by a just judgment. Only a just punishment can satisfy a righteous demand for justice. God's wrath is not arbitrary, it's not capricious, but it is purposeful and just, and it is terrible. And and the wrath of God is coming. We see it in part today, but only in part. We see it in part in the seal judgments. we see it in part in the trumpet judgments. There, there, There is not full wrath being poured out there because there's still time for sinners to repent. But with the pouring out of the bold judgments and the blowing of the seventh trumpet, there is no more patience on God's part. And the full wrath of God is then poured out. And with the coming of God's wrath, now is the time, we see in verse 18, for three things, the judging of the dead, the rewarding of the saints, and the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. All three of these events are going to be described in greater detail when we get into some of the latter chapters. Uh, The judging of the dead. There we see uh, uh, an allusion to the great white throne judgment in chapter 20. The writer of Hebrews says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. It's something that we'll all share in. Death and then judgment. All of the dead, all those, and all those who are alive at, at Christ's return will be judged for their sin. And will need to give an account for their lives. And every sinner will be judged guilty and sentenced as a result of that. We're guilty for disobeying God. Guilty of sin. And it is a terrible thing to be found guilty in God's sight. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The guilty will be judged, and the guilty will be sentenced, and the sentence will be terrible and eternal. And this will be the case for all sinners. All sinners will be judged, but not all people will be judged. And so the elders also make mention of something else that will happen during this time, and that is the rewarding of the saints. So, not all will be judged. Because although all are sinners, not all have an advocate. Not all have a redeemer. Not all have atonement, a covering for their sins. You see, the, the saints are not saints because they are not sinners. The saints are saints because their sin has been covered by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ spilled on the cross. And they have been made saints, not by their own works But by the righteousness credited to them through Jesus' death on the cross. By grace through faith in Christ alone. And so the saints are not judged. Instead they are rewarded. The rewarding of the saints is alluded to by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Whether good or evil. But our greatest reward at that point is not crowns and not trinkets. Our greatest reward at that time will be God himself and us in the very presence of God. And then the third thing that the elders tell us will happen during this time is the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. We're going to encounter the destroyers of the earth in chapters 13 and 14. And the song of the elders here tells us that upon the return of Christ, those destroyers of the earth will be done away with they will be destroyed ultimately completely and eternally so in the song of the elders in verses 16 through 18 we we see two things first of all we see an example of worship exhibited by humility thankfulness and a recognition for who god is and what he's done but secondly we see a summation of the final events the nations raging the wrath of god coming the dead being judged the saints being rewarded, and the destroyers of the earth being ultimately and completely destroyed. And then finally in verse 19, we're given a picture of what the end will accomplish. Verse 19, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And here we see a picture of the final judgment. And it tells us two things. One, for believers there is access to God. Heaven is opened. Just just like when when the veil of the temple was torn in two, when Jesus died on the cross and provided access for sinners who come to faith in Jesus. Access to God by grace through faith in Christ. Now this access to the very presence of God is symbolized by by the the temple in heaven being opened, so much so that the Ark of the Covenant is seen in heaven. The Ark representing the promises of God and and the the presence of God. And so for believers, the, the very end represents access to God, access to His presence. But to unbelievers, it represents judgment And and we see here this massive storm that both in the seal judgments and here is representative of judgment to come. So what's our takeaway from this passage? Well, the main point of these closing verses is quite simple. Judgment is coming. And the kingdom of God is coming. Judgment for unbelievers. It will be awful and eternal and reward for believers. It will be awesome and eternal as well. But we already know this, right? This is one of the main points of the book of Revelation. We we, we know that this will happen. So why at this point in the vision, as it's being laid out for John, why do we have this telescoping to the end here? We've still got half the book to go. And there's some hard stuff still to unpack. Why is there this in the middle? I think that it's because God knew we would need to be reminded of this good news. That a sovereign God has a perfect plan. A plan to put an end to all sin and all rebellion. A plan to defeat the vestiges of sin, both sin and dwelling in our heart, and sin that is in the world around us. A plan to finally and completely culminate the eternal salvation of His people. And a plan to set up His eternal and glorious kingdom where He will make all things new. And I think we need to be reminded of this because we live in a world and we live in a time where it seems as if sin and evil rule the day. But they don't. It's just a facade. And we need to be reminded that he's got this in control. When we see sin and evil as if they are reigning around us, the effect on us can be real. It can be very discouraging. And it can be wearying. And we can easily find our faith in God's promises of the end waning. And so the Lord gives to John, and the Lord gave to the first century churches, and the Lord has given to us in this book a reminder that He's got a perfect plan to pull a drawstring on the timeline of eternity. And so let us be encouraged by these great reminders. Let us thank God and worship him for his sovereign and perfect plan to consummate his kingdom. And may we seek to maintain in this world and in this life an eternal perspective. This world will not last so we ought to stop living as if it will. We should live in this world as if we are absolutely certain that we will be with our king in the next. Which means that in the days that we have left, no matter how many there are, how many, how, how few they are, how much they are, in whatever days we have left, we ought to be fighting to kill indwelling sin as if we're going to see Jesus that very day. We ought to be fighting against anxious thoughts and fearful anxiety as if this were true and we're about to see it consummated. We ought to be reading the scriptures as if it were truly God's word and the one who wrote them, the one who breathed life into them we're about to encounter face to face. We ought to be speaking to the Lord in prayer, corporately and in our own private prayer closets, as if we're about to see Him, not just with eyes of faith, but face to face. And friend, we ought to be sharing the gospel as if the lost person that we're speaking to is about to stand before a holy God. Let's pray.